0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Edith Bowman. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Right then, from a very, very early age, Christopher Nolan was making movies. Uh, A film fan who very vividly remembers going to watch films and the experience of that with his father in Leicester Square. And now he himself, uh, an architect of film, who writes and directs with finesse and purpose, raising questions about the human condition, Survival, time, and love. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Back for Life and Pictures, Christopher Nolan
1: Welcome.
0: Um, what was the last film you went to see at the cinema? Not your own.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, Emma, what was the last film we saw in the cinema? <laughs> huh? Ladybird, Lady I think.
0: Good yeah. choice. Yeah. Great yeah. choice. Yeah. Sorry, I threw you straight away with the first one. Well, I, we
1: go to films quite a lot, so, yeah. because I don't go to the films while I'm working. Mm-hmm. So when we finish a film and then, you know, try and catch up.
0: Like a stuff. release almost. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, it's just it's great fun. But, but I find when I'm working, it's distracting and... I don't enjoy the enjoy the films, I'm sort of analysing. Yeah. You know, if I'm mixing sound, I'm hearing the sound, and if we're in the middle of shooting, you're just looking at <laughs> choice of shots and stuff, so you kind of have to be done with what you're doing, and then you can you can go and watch.
0: I mentioned in your introduction about um, hearing you talk very vividly about your memories about going to the cinema in Leicester Square and, and seeing films, and, and I mm. wanted to ask you about those films throughout your life, before we start talking about your own films, that. Mm-hmm that maybe pinpointed certain elements to your life and the films and the filmmakers that that have influenced you to get to the point where you started making films yourself?
1: Sure. I mean, I I think pretty much anyone my age, I'm I'm 47, so for me, one of the most impactful films uh, as a youngster was Lucas's first Star Wars. I was seven when it came out, and I think I went to see it 12 times in the in movie Pre-home video though, bear in mind. So I wasn't the only person to see it a lot of times. Um, but I do remember, because everyone would go for their birthday parties, you know, take their friends to see Star Wars for two years until you know, Empire Strikes Back came out. <laughs> and I do remember at one point, asking my dad to take me when it re-released and, and I remember him finally saying, I, I've given George Lucas enough money, <laughs> like, I'm down, you know. uh, But that, that was a, a huge impact for me. Um, it was really my first experience of how transporting movies could be—that the screen could just open up and, you know, take you into other worlds. Um, and then, in the in the wake of that success, they re-released Kubrick's 2001, mm. and my dad took me to sit in the Leicester Square Theatre, and it was just a tremendous experience. I mean, I had no idea what it meant, or, you know. It was a very abstract, pure cinematic. Experience that I, I really loved, and I, I remember it very clearly. And uh, uh, and then I introduced actually a BAFTA screening. We had a BAFTA screening of Interstellar. It was the last film to play in the Leicester Square Theatre before they knocked it down. Uh, so it was wow. a nice sort of yeah uh, nice end to that, I suppose.
0: Well, I love. I heard you talk about Space Odyssey and and the fact that you loved it and enjoyed it, but you didn't understand it. But that yeah. didn't matter.
1: Well, I think I did understand it. I mean, that's the thing. I think I understood it the way it's intended, mm-hmm. which is it, it is a purely cinematic, abstract experience. It's, it's in a sense an emotional experience and maybe puzzling in certain ways, but it's one of those things where the more you try to understand it in a literal sense, the less you get out of it. Uh, and I think kids are very open to that kind of experience. Uh, and, and a lot of my friends you know, went to see that film because uh, we were into spaceships, you know, so we we just enjoyed it on really, I suppose, just a visceral level, just the the sheer fun of watching those images.
0: Um, now, I have it on very good authority uh, that you are, in fact, and I quote, uh, he's a bigger comedy nerd than you would think. Mr. Edgar Wright told me that.
1: Very good authority, yeah. <laughs> As comedy <laughs> nerds go, very good authority. Uh, yes, I mean, I think people sometimes Imagine with filmmakers that they only actually like the kind of films that, that they make, but mm-hmm. you only have to meet James Gray. I don't know if you've ever met James Gray. No,
0: it's mean, a pleasure. Just
1: hysterically funny, just, you know, the exact opposite of the films he makes. You know, uh, I think that's very often true. And, and I've always liked all different, different types of movies, particularly stupid
0: comedies. <laughs> Favorite comedy film?
1: With Nail and I.
0: Brilliant! I was going to swear there. I was going to recite Monty, you terrible. But I won't. (laughs) I will not. Um, Did you? What did you aspire? What type of filmmaker did you aspire to be when you started making films? Did you know what type of filmmaker you you hoped to be? Um,
1: I think it changes over time Uh, and still changes. But I think the interesting thing about the way filmmakers engage with movies is unlike literature, unlike authors talking about what books influence them or whatever, um, really every filmmaker comes through mainstream Hollywood cinema as a youngster. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't that many 11 or 12 year olds who are watching Goddard or whatever. I mean, they might claim to afterwards, but the truth is we all come to our appreciation of, of movies really through the Hollywood machine, and so, Later on, you know, in your teens or whatever, you you start responding to more interesting, more different things, and and that leads you to different places. But I think for so many of us, and particularly for me, at the back of my mind, there's always this idea of the large-scale blockbuster when it really does something transporting, something you haven't seen before. That's the brass ring that you're reaching for. Like, if you can give an audience, if you can recapture that experience for, for yourself uh, I think I think that's the prize, you
0: know. Well, I heard you say that you you know you make films for the audience, yeah, not for yourself. Has that always been the case, or is that something that you've discovered as as you go through as in a filmmaking in your own right?
1: Well, it, it's not quite accurate to say I I make I am the audience. Is what I'm saying. I mean, we're all the audience, mm. and I never trust any conversation I get into, whether it's with studio executives or you know, department heads, whatever, whenever people start talking about they as the audience and excluding themselves from it, I think Mm. think they're missing the point. We're all the audience, and we all have particular expectations of the type of film that we've paid our money to go see. And I like to be, I suppose I would say, I, I like to try and be intelligent and constructive about how you are in a dialogue with those expectations. Not to sort of defy them or ignore them or pretend they don't exist, but sort of say, okay, if you make a superhero film, for example, you know the audience is going into that with a with a certain expectation, and and much as I made the Dark Knight films not as superhero films, I really tried to make them just, you know, tried to make the best movie I knew how to make. But you have to be aware of what an audience is paying the money to go see, mm-hmm. and then you're trying to maybe. Play with that expectation, shift it a bit, or change it a bit, but you can't ignore it.
0: When you started making films with your with your shorts, you know, to, to start with, mm-hmm. um, can you talk me through that that kind of journey and how you how you came to the narratives that you, that you wanted to tell with those with those first shorts and and, how, and what you learnt along that way.
1: Well. I feel very fortunate to have been, I suppose, really the last generation to grow up with Super 8 film. So I started making films with my dad's Super 8 camera and um, with the little cartridges that ran two and a half minutes and were silent. So there wasn't really a question of sophisticated narrative, mm-hmm. uh, it was really just a question of trying to put an interesting image together and then find another one to follow it and, and messing around with techniques and stuff. And so. For me, in my childhood and in my teens and then getting getting older, it was really a process of trying to find an increased level of purpose, I suppose, or sophistication to the way those images fit together. And then eventually, um, in wanting to do more uh, legitimate short film work on 16mm with sound and everything, you suddenly find yourself having to write a script and having to sort of address the, the written word and how that uh, plays into it. But I think that it's very different for kids today who have sound attached to their images. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's a sort of a different entry point, really. And, and I actually feel pretty lucky to have come in, you know, in the silent cinema, as it were. Yeah.
0: Well, it gets that appreciation of the visual. It's that, you know, yeah. and, and not being reliant on anything else, purely what you can see and trying to get those those images to tell a story, which we'll actually get into when we, when we get to talk about Dunkirk a little bit later on. In, and wonderful sort of example of that. First up then, 2000's Memento. What do you think about, or what's the first thing that kind of pops into your head when you are reminded of Memento or you think about it?
1: I, it's, it's hard to describe really. I mean, the films you make, they, they have a, as they do for the audience, they have an interesting place in, in your brain. They're very much like dreams. I mean, there's a, a real familiarity with, with the scene. And every shot that's gone in it. And I mean, different filmmakers approach it differently, but my process as is my writing process is to go over things again and again and again and again. So I haven't seen it in years, but I've seen it thousands of times. (laughs) So it's it's very much a part of me in in an almost dreamlike way. So it's like sort of tapping into an old an old state of mind or something. Which is it's a weird mix of nostalgia and kind of (laughs) you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 interesting.
0: The, the the story came from your your brother's sh- short story that mm-hmm. he wrote, uh, and in terms of translating that into a screenplay and how you would then go on to film it, I'm really interested in terms of of how that worked because the the narrative and the structure of it is so intricate and interesting. And am I right in thinking that you decided to deny the the original idea was to deny the audience the the information that the protagonist was denied, mm-hmm. and that was the whole kind of purpose of the kind of structure of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jonah first told me the story. We were driving cross-country in America. We were going from Chicago to Los Angeles, and he told me this story that he was writing, or he was intending to write. I don't think, I think he had a draft of it, but he he just told me the story verbally. And my comment to him was, that's a terrific idea for a a movie. and do you have a way in the story, and can I find a way, if you'll let me write a screenplay from it, to make it subjective? You know, if you could put the audience in that character's point of view, it felt like you'd, you'd be doing something that hadn't been done before. You'd sort of crack something. And Jonah agreed, let me write my screenplay. He went off and worked on the story for forever. I think we finished the film before he finished the story, in truth. Um, and the story is very brilliant, but he, he experimented with a lot of different ideas, like mm-hmm. having a, a random set of scenes that you'd shuffle like a deck of cards, you know, things like that. Really, really fascinating ideas. Its final form, when it was published in Esquire, uh, right when the film came out, uh, it's it's a very brilliant story. It's it's pretty different from what I did with the screenplay. My approach to the screenplay was, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about. I felt like there must there must be a conceptual way of mimicking the condition in the content of the film. And I just, one day, it just sort of clicked for me that if you told the story with a reverse chronology, then, as you say, the information will be denied to the audience. You wouldn't know what had just happened the way the character doesn't know what just happened.
0: And how did you film it? Did you film it in, sort of from start to finish chronologically, or did you I, did you I wrote it
1: chronologically, having worked out the structure. Um, the film I'd made before this, uh, following, I had figured out a structure written a chronological version of the script and then sort of cut and pasted it. And then there'd be so much rewriting to make it flow as a narrative experience for the audience um, that I I knew with Memento I had to write it from page one to page 120, whatever it was. Um, When we came to film it, films are shot in a a totally arbitrary and peculiar order anyway based on actor availability, location availability, all of that. So that wasn't really such a problem. I only ever viewed the material in the order that it was in the script. I never reordered it to sort of look at it. I always felt it was important to try and view it the way the audience was going to see it. Um, So it was shot, you know, like any other film, it was shot in a strange order. There were a lot of questions from the crew. I mean, they are all pretty fascinated by, you know, well, how does this fit together and, and all the rest. But I always sort of said I didn't want anybody to... Reorder the script and make it chronologically. I think Emma might have made a chronological version for certain crew <laughs> members without telling me. Secretly uh, going to secretly. <laughs> yeah, I think there was maybe a secret, a secret source of chronology somewhere. Uh, but I, but I always quite rigidly, and in the edit suite as well, rigidly tried to watch it the way the audience was going to receive the information.
0: Because the, the Guy's performance is incredible in, in, in this yeah. film, and, and you know, almost within the two films in the film, the, the sort of the black and white and. The objective view and the, mm. the color, and and they're very different performances as well, which is is so clever to get within one film of one character. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I was really interested to, to find out what the discussions that you had with him were, or, or or if you did talk to him much about his performance and what you expected of it.
1: Well, we we talked a lot. I mean, guy, he came to LA early. Where, yeah, LA is where we shot the film, Burbank, and. Uh, he, he came a couple of weeks early to, to rehearse and to talk to me about it, and we did things. like We actually went to the motel that was the location we were gonna shoot in, and spent an afternoon uh, in a room just talking about it, rehearsing that whole sequence and everything. Um, I think it's a tremendous performance, uh, and he had an incredible knack for understanding the script and how it was meant to work, and, and it, not just his characterization, but but how it was all going to fit together, which was very, very helpful to me. It was a tremendous creative ally. Um, and the film was shot very quickly. You know, we shot 25 and a half days, and the half day was an extra bit of time that we were able to secure because all of the black and white sequences, everything in that room and the ins and outs of that room, was scheduled for one day, which is a little crazy. Uh, and, but he had agreed to do it and, you know, in the end we were able to, to get another half a day and just give him a little more time. But I think the fact that he was able to do everything he did in such a kind of pressured way, because very often with independent films on, on tight schedules, you know, the, the performances, it's very tough, there isn't time to really try things and really, you know, so he, he worked out what he was gonna do, we talked about it and he was very precise in everything and, and just did it very, very efficiently. <laughs>
0: Um, from a small independent film, then <laughs> um, we move forwards, and uh, and we've we've put Batman together. I hope you don't mind. Um,
1: that's quite all right. right. Ten like, years of my life, so, yeah. one. That's fine. Like
0: a flash, it's like Interstellar meets <laughs> Batman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think your seven-year-old self would say if it knew you were going to write and direct three Batman films?
1: Well, I mean a lot of the fun of. <laughs> You know, a lot of the fun of the job I get to do is you do have moments where you're able to sort of sit back and say, you know, we have got to design a car from scratch and and build it and then race it up and down streets and stuff, and it, it it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I it's funny when you look at it because I I came to Batman. My knowledge of Batman was from the TV series, mm-hmm. uh, which I saw when I was very young, four or five years old, and when I look at these films, to me that's kind of the seriousness with which the TV series played when I was four or five years old. Because when you <laughs> see it now, like it's a bit more camp than that, a bit more Ow. humorous, and you know. Um, but there's something very elemental about the character and about the the business of the Batcave, the costume, the way that all works. And you know, really, it's it's a lot of time and effort trying to tap back into the way you saw those elements when you were a kid, when they were just speaking to this. Kind of primal sense of of what that would represent, and not asking all the logical questions that you then in, in these films have to try and address.
0: When you were first um, asked to, to do Batman Begins, were you always going to do the trilogy?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, the the movies I've grown up with, the, my sense of how big movies work. You know, what I grew up with is you do a movie and you put everything into it, and whatever you have in the back of your head about a sequel or how you would move on from there or whatever, you don't save anything for that. You don't plan that too carefully. You, you In a way, you don't want to jinx things. Mm. So you just, with Batman Begins, you know, David Goyer and myself and, and my brother, we had, we had loose conversations about where you would move on. But then we immediately kind of put that to one side and said, no, we're going to put everything into the movie. And that was how we did each film. Um, and that way, we were able to kind of grow with the films. I mean, there were three years between... Uh, the first two, and then four years between two and three, and so we had time to change as people, let the story evolve, um, and so really it was it was all sort of written and constructed over you know nine years, and and that's a privilege, that's a a luxury really that, that filmmakers aren't afforded anymore. Actually, I think I think it was probably the last time anyone really got to say to the studio, yeah, I'll do another one, but it might be four years, you know. Yeah. I, I, it's, there's too much pressure on release schedules to really be able to do that now, and I think creatively for us, it was just a huge advantage. So yeah, we had vague plans, but but we had a lot of time. We had the luxury of time to do other projects in between and develop as people and storytellers, and you know, and then come back and sort of put the family back together and, and see where it's gone. You know, which is yeah, it was it was a tremendous uh, privilege really.
0: And in terms of creating that world and. and the visual and the design of it. And mm. it, it sounds like, you know, you had a very clear idea in your head as to, to the stories you <laughs> wanted to tell, but also how mm. you wanted it to look. How much of that was you?
1: Well, I work very closely on every aspect of the films and on the design, you know, I worked on all three films and on most of the films I've done with Nathan Crowley, who's a very mm. brilliant designer. And we've known each other a long time. Uh, and we start every project, just the two of us. So rather than hiring a department or hiring, we would work out of uh, the garage in my house and you know we would set up a table on the washing machines or whatever and start building things and talking about just the two of us. And we'd do that for, I mean, months um, because then there's no pressure to be sort of feeding the beast. So you get to try things. You get to find the look of things in private, really, and, mm-hmm. and just do it in a very... Uh, a fun way, in a sort of childlike way, without pressure of time, because the expenses are very low, and I would be, you know, working on the screenplay at the same time, and so we'd sort of try and meet and start hiring people as we actually needed them, you know, later in the day. And so that was how the Batmobile was designed and the Pod and everything. And the truth is, I didn't have a fixed idea of how I wanted the films to look. What I had was a sense of tone that mm-hmm. I wanted. And right from the beginning, Nathan, who's very much a modernist, he wanted a very... Stark and modern feel. And on Batman Begins, I pulled him back from that a bit. I said, Look, I, you know, there have been such successful tellings of this character in a very gothic manner. I don't want to abandon that completely. I want some feeling of that and a bit of the modernism. And then by the time we got to The Dark Knight, we felt we could go further in that direction. And so that became very much sort of more stark and stripped down. And then on Dark Knight Rises, we sort of got to in a sense, combine the two things. There's a little more romanticism, there's a slightly different, different look. Um, but that's a lot of the fun of making these kind of films is figuring out that whole world. And we do it in a way that's very, very different to the way these films are made um, generally because we don't hire teams of concept artists and tell them, you know, come up with a bunch of ideas for this, come up with a bunch of ideas for that. We, with every film, we just talk it through ourselves and chat and look at images and just start to try and build it from something small. We try and find a thing that is the jumping-off point. And in the case of the Dark Knight trilogy, it was the Batmobile. Because I had a thing in my head, and I felt like if we could make a model of it and then show it to the studio when we showed them the screenplay, they'd they'd get the idea of what the tone is. Uh, And I think that worked quite well.
0: Um, The Dark dark Knight in 2008 and this... Iconic character that that you and uh, Lindy Hemming and Heath created for the Joker is 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 a character that will go down in history as one of the most iconic characters on film. Period. I think.
1: Well, and, and John Caglione who did his makeup as well, it was a big part of that creative process. Yeah.
0: And, and I watched this wonderful little kind of behind the scenes film of you all talk sort of me talking about it and mm. the swatches of fabric, and it was so precise and you know. It was, ten different shades of purple, but there was one yeah. that was just the right purple. And yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about that creation of that character? Because, as I see it, it's wonderfully iconic.
1: Well, I left the purple up to other people because I'm <laughs> colourblind. <laughs> Not so. your colour? Uh, no, I, I, can't, I can barely see shades of purple. I'm, I'm red-green <laughs> colourblind. Uh, so I left that aspect up to Lindy very much. <laughs> um, but, no, it was, it was a tremendous thing to be involved with because Heath didn't do many films and he would wait a long time between films, as he put it to me, he would wait until he felt he needed to go out and do something else. Like he really would wait until he was hungry. Yeah. He'd wait a little bit too long on purpose so that he'd, he'd be sort of desperate to do it. And um, it was really amazing to sort of find the character, because of the Joker, and he understood this, It's so much about the appearance of the character. Um, cinema acting, film acting has gone through various phases. Uh, you know, and if you think about the more external acting of Olivier or Charles Lawton or, you know, that then becoming the sort of method and you get Brando and then, you know, De Niro and Pacino and everything, where it all becomes internal. Um, but Heath was one of younger actors today. and Tom Hardy is, is another one I work with, uh, where the two things kind of come together. So there's an interior process that goes on, and Heath is very diligent about figuring that out. But he's also thinking about how the props and the costume are going to affect the movement, the walk, there's a, there's an external sense that harkens back to almost silent films. And so if you watch the beginning of The Dark Knight and you look at him, right from when he's standing on that street corner, there's a particular aspect to him. It's like Buster Keaton or something. There's just a, there's a physicality that is telling you a lot about the character. Um, and so the hair and makeup tests we did, which we filmed on 35mm and everything, um, they were his chance to start exploring that. And, You know, Wally would light some stuff for him, get the handheld camera out, whatever, and he would try the coat on, try different knives, different weapons, and and all that, and start to move with it, try the makeup. Um, I brought in a a book I had of Francis Bacon paintings, uh, and I showed that to John and to Heath, and it was like, This, to me, it feels like that's the language, you know, the reds and whites, the smearing, there's something there to, to inspire us. And then the thing Heath had figured out is he said he wanted to have John design it and then at least once or twice in prep apply the makeup of himself mm-hmm. as the character would and you know figured we'd just get something from that about how that would work and of course the thing we've got for it is you know if you watch the film he's got traces of makeup on his fingers the whole time because he as he would and it was that kind of thing to watch him figure that out and start to, to bring that together and he had such a unique way of moving that he'd worked out it was so unpredictable in its cadence, and, and the way he spoke. You never knew whether what was gonna come out of his mouth would be very high or very low. It's it's very unpredictable, and I've watched a lot of people try to do that kind of thing since he's done it, and I, I've never seen anyone pull it off. I mean, he it was very unique, and the first time he did it for me, I was scared shitless of him. I was like, I don't, I don't know what people are gonna think. I was imagining a much more traditional, you know, sense of it or, or whatever, but then uh, the thing I, I remember is, you know, I just trusted him because he was, uh, you know, he'd really worked on it. He was a terrific actor. But I can remember the f- watching the crew respond mm. the first time he would really use that voice and really talk. And you, you know, you could feel it. Everybody could feel that he was doing something very special.
0: You've mentioned that a couple of times in terms of the crew reacting to things, and it, mm. it feels very much like, you know, you, you do have a wonderful team around you, yeah. people that you work with on a regular, you know, regularly, but but you listen to people. It's important for you to have those voices on set where you, you trust and you, you listen to what they have to say. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, being a director, it's, it's an odd thing to describe. I don't have a job on set. I don't actually have anything to do. Uh, I don't record the sound. I don't act in the film. I don't photograph it. You know, I'm just there. I think it's, it's like being the conductor of an orchestra or something. So like You don't play an instrument, but somehow you're... I think I see it as I'm a lens that people's input gets so sort of focused through. And you need, I think you very much need that individual point of focus. I think it's important. I'm not being falsely modest, mm-hmm. but I'm saying my role is to listen uh, and and to tell people what to do as well, but also to listen and, and you know, try and figure out what is going to serve the story and the particular telling of the story that we're doing and what isn't and needs to be, you know, ignored or jettisoned or, or whatever. And so you really want to have the best people around you with the most ideas, uh, and you want to have people who are okay to... You want people to feel that they can contribute and and say anything, but you also want people whose feelings won't be hurt when you say, that's not right, you know, so that you can have a a very free uh, environment creatively.
0: Can we talk a little bit about Wally Pfister? Mm. And in terms of of the work, and particularly through these Batman films in terms of how it looks, because, you know... it's yeah,
1: yeah. I mean he, he did a, a remarkable job on those films and on, on all the films we did together mm-hmm. and we had a we had quite a journey together really um, I mean mm-hmm. he's since you know become a director <coughs> and so I've used a different DP on the last two films mm-hmm. but um, we worked together for, for many many years and, and, and really understood each other and had a had a very easy creative relationship in terms of understanding what what we were after Um and we went through this particular journey on these films where with, with Batman Begins, it was the first blockbuster either of us had been involved. In. And so he knew that it had to look a particular way. We wanted a particular elegance to it, and a particular style to it. And so he lit it in a very, very, um, well, he was, it was a very fast DP, so it didn't take a long time, but for him it took a long time. It was very precise. <laughs> And very controlled, and and I think very beautiful. Um, we then went on to do the, the Prestige together, and I said to him, "I want to do that in completely opposite way. I want it to be completely. I don't want you to light anything. I don't want you to have any stands on the floor or any grip equipment or whatever. Just light from windows, you know, whatever." And that film was done very much in that way, and I think I think it's some of his best work. Um, so then, when we came to the Dark Knight, and we introduced. IMAX into the equation, we did the action sequences in IMAX, which was very challenging. Uh, What he did was he took the spontaneity and the ease that we developed with the prestige, and he applied that to this very large-scale film, so that um, it has quite a different look actually from Batman Begins, it it sort of advances it. Uh, And the IMAX, for Wally particularly, it shifted the way he had to light things at night, for example. So the scenes we just looked at were the Joker standing in the middle of the street, you know, the truck flip and everything. Um, he couldn't backlight those scenes because normally what he would have done is put the light just on top of the frame and put a, a backlight. That's a very elegant and practical way of lighting night scenes. So he had to come up with something completely different. He had to front light the buildings uh, because the IMAX frame is so tall. There's no way to get the, the lights in from behind. Uh, and I think that's that's, you know, some really beautiful work that he did to sort of combine that. And then, as with Nathan, I think on on Dark Knight Rises, he did a beautiful job of almost combining the two different looks, the sort of romanticism of the first film and the the beautiful lighting of that with the spontaneity and the coldness (laughs) of some of the things from the second film.
0: You mentioned the the truck flip. It was one of my three quick questions, actually. Did you flip the truck? Actually flip the truck? Me
1: personally? No. (laughs) Uh,
0: Truck flip. I did not. But I said action and
1: (laughs) I said action and a. Talented stuntman named Jim Wilkie drove it down the street and, and flipped it, yes. And it was it was quite a thing to see. I bet. Yeah. Um,
0: my other question was, why doesn't he hit him?
1: Why doesn't he hit him? Uh, that's a very good question. I'd have to think about that. <laughs> Batman doesn't kill people.
0: Okay. And, uh,
1: uh, no, I mean, he doesn't. It, it's an interesting thing. I um, When I signed up to do Batman... My knowledge of the comic books, and I've admitted this probably, was was very slim. Mm. Um, you know, I really knew from a TV show. And I, it was a bit of a surprise to me to realize right at the beginning, you know, in talking to, uh, you know, I had friends of mine, a friend called Dave Savo, who's very knowledgeable about comics, and I brought him on as a consultant. And first thing he told me is, and David Goyer told me the same thing, he's like, Batman doesn't carry a gun, he doesn't kill people. And I sort of went, oh, okay. So how do we... <laughs> You know, just
0: signed. <laughs> but
1: of course, that becomes the whole tension. Yeah. And this whole thing of how is he going to how do you fight chaos? How do you fight anarchy? How do you fight somebody totally committed to, you know, doing anything that it takes when you're not prepared to be as bad as they are and you're not prepared to sink to their level. And that that really is the backbone of the character. And so mm. it, it becomes really the the driving force in, in the whole trilogy.
0: And who drinks Bernie Branca?
1: Michael Caine.
0: Only Michael Caine drinks well, it. Well, <laughs>
1: Michael Caine loves Furnie Brecker and it, it's, it's, a, it's made from artichokes and it's it's quite an intense flavour.
0: <laughs> He's made you and drink
1: it. Well, I, yes. We'd been on the press tours and he swears by it because if you have a heavy meal and you drink one at the end, he, he says you will never feel hungover or no indigestion. And I tried it and I don't want to say anything negative about this particular <laughs> drink um, because... In fact, I think in all the years I've been doing big films. For some reason, like, the people who make the Bond films, they get given, like, Aston Martins and things like that. I've never had anything except Fernie Branca after Dark Rise Rises. <laughs> a case, a large case For of life. Fernie Branca. <laughs> and so I've been giving it away ever since. And, uh, <laughs> but no, Michael, Michael absolutely loves a drink. And it's, uh, yeah, so we, you know, when it came time to write that scene, I thought, well, that's, you know. I love that. I uh, love it. It
0: was his, his thing yeah. within the film. You mentioned The Prestige. Do you think um, films are a magic trick?
1: Yeah, very much. Um, it's funny, watching The Dark Knight, which I made after, right after The Prestige, I was watching Nicky Cat, who's the policeman, who's the sort of comic relief in, in The Chase, and very aware of the fact that having worked on The Prestige, I was very precise about I needed him to come in and do that riff or whatever because he's the misdirection for... Gordon being in the driver's seat, so you never think about the driver, you never mm-hmm. so the prestige absolutely highlighted to me that, yeah, movies are a magic trick. Narrative uh, is a, is a magic trick. Or conversely, when you study magic uh, as I had to for the prestige, you realise that it's a narrative art, you know, it's a little every trick is a little story, hence the the three act structure that we refer to with the Made-up terms mm. you know, magicians <laughs> hopefully now use and swear by, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Christopher Priest uh, invented the, the prestige and the concept of it, and then I think Jonah added you know the first two, the the pledge and the turn, which I think are really beautiful.
0: Is the experience different when it's an adaptation like this was, and in, Insomnia was the other adaptation you worked on?
1: I mean, every uh, every film you do is different um, in terms of process. I, the fact that it was an adaptation, not so much so because we had a very long time to do the adaptation and we were very free to change things, you know, the book was not massively well known um, and it had some amazing stuff in it and Christopher Priest did a wonderful job with it. But we we felt relatively free and he was fine with us to, to change it and make it different for the film and we had a, I had a long time and a lot of experimentation with them to do that. So. I think with anything, even with an adaptation, by the time you hit the floor with it, you feel that you own it. For better or for worse, you feel that you've taken it over and and made it your own. So I think at the end of the day, it didn't feel that different. I think Insomnia, because it was specifically a remake of a film that had already been made, Mm -hmm. uh, that was sort of closer in a sense, was sort of a little bit more aware and had to kind of put the other movie, which is a very brilliant film, the, the original, just sort of put it to one side and not watch it again, and kind of ignore that it existed in a way. With a novel that you're adapting, you feel more authority to be able to go back to it and draw from it, and you know try different things.
0: What did you like about the prestige? What was the attraction to to make it?
1: I think in retrospect, I think I very much related to um, the process of the characters and the idea of. Them, their showmanship and the way in which they have to create these narratives for the, the audience. And so I think for somebody interested and in, in working in films, it was a pretty natural match-up. But I think the world of it, particularly, I very much responded to. I also I like films, when I talk about other people's films, I, I like films that don't necessarily have the conventional protagonist-antagonist structure mm-hmm. um, and the film of a rivalry and a sort of duality in that way. Uh, I've enjoyed films like that in the past. I mean, think of Michael Mann's Heat, particularly. That's a great favourite of mine. And you know, films that just have a have a different symmetry to them, if you like. Uh, I think I was very attracted to that.
0: Um, and working with Christian Bale again, who you obviously work with on, on Batman, and, yeah. and and casting, recasting people that you've worked with before. Mm. Is there? I mean, is it just easier? <laughs> is it?
1: Uh, Not necessarily. It depends <laughs> on the actor. Uh, no, it's. Uh, there is an ease of communication, certainly. But I think, honestly, I think for me, what it's more about is that when you work with a great actor, you get excited about seeing them do different things. And so you have them, you know, you don't write the part for them, but they're in the back of your head somewhere that, you know, this idea of, I'd like to see, you know, Christian do this or do that. You know, I'd like to give him a challenge. You, you kind of want to, you get excited about handing him something, and saying, what could you do with that? Yeah.
0: Have you written roles specifically for actors then?
1: Almost never. Um, you try not to, because if you're writing with an actor in mind, you're basically writing something you've seen them do mm-hmm. too closely. You know, you, you, so I try to just write the characters as the characters. I think Morgan Freeman, Lucius Fox in the Batman films, they, I very much had him in mind when I, I felt I felt like I sort of wrote to his his voice in a way.
0: Tom Hardy in Dunkirk feels like it's the only person who could have played that particular role.
1: Very much, but I didn't write it with him in mind, I just wrote it and then I just was like, I, I have to get Tom to do this and say, put the mask on again and, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. And, you know, but he's, you know, Tom's very loyal and, you know, he was, he was willing to come and come and have a go, which was great because, I, yeah, I couldn't think of anybody else to do it once I'd written it.
0: We'll talk a bit more about that in a, in a second. Can I, before we move on to the next one, can, I, can we talk about working with David Bowie as well on, on the prestige mm. and what... What that was like, that experience.
1: I mean, it was tremendous. I, I mean, all I could really say, it's the first time I ever went back to an actor who'd passed because he passed on the role uh, through his agent, um, who was actually Guy Pierce's agent. That's how we were able to get in touch with him. But he, he said no, and and I've never done this before because normally when someone says no, you go, oh, fuck you, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'll you'll see. Come and see the film, you know. Uh, yeah. But I, wrong. It just felt like the wrong. I mean, it just, I couldn't imagine doing it with someone else. And and you know the and of course the agencies all started sending me every pop star who ever wanted to act and to do it. And I'm like, no, no, no. The, the, it wasn't because of that. The, something about his presence. And so I called his agent and said, let me try and convince him. You know, uh, in retrospect, that was probably a cheap trip to just get to meet one of my idols anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, and then the thing I did is I very hastily wrote. An introduction to the character, which I had been slightly missing from my draft, you know, because I, I looked at it with his eyes in a way and said, okay, well, what, you know, what does it need? It needs a little more shape. Uh, and I flew to New York and I, and I met with him, and uh, you know, he agreed to do it, which was terrific and and it was wonderful working with him. And the only thing I could say about him is, I've worked with a lot of very big stars, and without disrespecting them in any way, he's the only famous person that I worked with who was just as sort of impressive and elusive at the end of working with him as, as before. I mean, I'm still, I came out of it just the fan that I had been before, it's almost as if I never really got to work with him, you know. Mm. Um, but I knew that, of course, it would be one of the great boasts of my life to say that I'd, I'd work with him, which it is, you know, and uh, and I think he does, a, he does a terrific job in the film and I'm, I'm very glad to, that he agreed to do it.
0: Glad you went back there. Um, talking about working with an incredible collection of big names in a film, uh, the wonderful Inception. How, how it, was it a rotating set? I mean, the cast are flying around, the camera stationary. It's 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 mind-boggling and brilliant.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, it was a couple of different rotating sets, and there really aren't any visual effects, which is kind of fun to for me to realise, particularly where Joe is. Joe Gordon-Levitt is, is fighting the guy. you know. Was, I mean, they're all in-camera shots, which is, is tremendous fun. But I, I, I mean, there, were, there was a lot of thought on Inception, even when I was writing the script, as to special effects techniques. I mean, one of the things that happened on Batman Begins has been introduced to these amazing special effects technicians. By special effects, I mean what you do on the floor, not visual effects, which are post-production effects. Yeah. And so, you know, Chris Corbould and his team did all the Bond films and everything? I mean, they're just these amazing wizards. And I think when I was writing the, the final draft of Inception, it was very much a thought of, okay, could they do this and could they do that and how would we go about this, and and knowing that that would be a lot of fun. And with the corridor and everything, I, I mean, for me, it all comes back to Kubrick's work on Two Thousand One, where he did, you know, these fascinating things with the rotating sets to simulate zero gravity or artificial gravity where something's rotating. And what I got to do, and this is the fun thing of using film history, is I got to sort of take that technique and then advance it by building a, you know, a track, or having the special effects guys build a track that we could move the camera up and down this corridor and, and extend the shot and sort of really do, do an extra dimension of it. And so, yeah, we built a, a massive rotating corridor. We built a, a vertical duplicate of that corridor so we could do wire work like the scene in 2001 where it blows out of the airlock or blows into the airlock from the, the pod. Um, and and so we also had the hotel room itself for the fight that was a separate rotating set. Now, it was a huge engineering feat, uh, but these guys, I mean, they really are wizards. They're capable of, of anything. And, and Joe Gordon-Levitt, I mean, I think there is one little shot in there that's a stunt double, just one. And other than that, the double, he was a very good double for Joe, but he just sat there by the side, kind of coaching him and helping him. But but Joe did obviously everything and learned how to do it. And those sets were impossible. I don't know how he did it. I mean, you would stand on that set and it would start to move and your brain just immediately sort of says, no, this is wrong, you know. And you, did you ever you know. go? I mean, yeah, we all did because we thought it'd be fun. We are like, oh, this is great. And it, it's not like that. It's sort of, you know, the room, it, it's interesting because it's, uh, you know, the, the, the room set was sort of eight foot, I think it was like an eight foot ceiling or something. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, 30 feet wide or whatever. And so you'd stand there and it would start to tip and you'd be fine and it's all very amusing. And then there's a certain point where you realise you can fall 30 feet or something and your brain just immediately panics. I mean, it really does. And they had a big stop button, you know, that if they ever saw it, go too far for where the actors were positioned they hit the button and it just stopped dead um, but it was remarkable how Joe I mean he's a, he's a tremendous athlete and mm. just a wonderfully physical performer and he just he just loved the challenge of it didn't want he didn't want a stunt to stunt over and do anything
0: um, what was the seed for inception where where did the idea come from for the story well
1: I I mean a bunch of different things I'd always been interested in the idea of taking on dreams uh, in, in films, knowing the hazards of it. It's difficult to do dreams in films and have people still care about the reality, the integrity, the, the narrative. Um, but, but really, uh, I think a lot of what's in there goes back to my college days. I was at UCL and was living in a hall of residence and they had free, where well, you would paid for breakfast, but you'd be up late at night so you, what I would do is I set my alarm clock for you know eight o'clock or whatever, you know breakfast was, wake up, go go eat, and then go back to bed. And in that state of sleeping between you know ten o'clock and one o'clock or whatever you were doing, um, you could lucid dream. You're in a different sort of dream mm-hmm. state, and so it was very productive for lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming being where you become aware of the fact that you're dreaming, and then you try and manipulate the dream in some way. Uh, and it's it's a fascinating mental process. And I got very very interested in the idea that, you know, if you have a dream that you take a book off a shelf and you leaf and you, you look at the words on the page, your brain is, one part of your brain is creating the words on the page and the other part is reading it. It's a really amazing sort of feedback loop. And I, I just got fascinated by those kind of ideas and, and what it could do to explore those. And I spent many, many years sort of trying to figure out a genre, an approach, and eventually, you know, settled on the, on the heist film.
0: Why that you did P F Track?
1: Is that just, written in the script. It was written in the script, and I just had always found that song to be just a wonderfully cinematic kind of song. I mean, I use music a lot in my writing and in my thinking about films, and I, I just always been very struck by that song. I thought it would, I thought it would be good in good in a film, you know. Um, and then, quite bizarrely, wound up with Marianne Cotillard who just played Beer for a movie uh, in the film, but. Pure coincidence, you know. Yeah, it was always in the script, and um, we, you know, Hans Zimmer did the music for the film, and his team. They, they they took the original recordings and found ways to strip it down, take different elements of it, and stretch it over time, so that as the time, you know, lines had a different scale, uh, you would hear the the track in, in different iterations, and and then we re-recorded that with instruments and stuff, and. Uh, yeah, I just, I just think it's a very evocative piece of music. It just seemed to fit.
0: Uh, we're going to talk about Hans because there's a wonderful story about you sending Han a paragraph of this, the idea for the film, with no uh, genre attached to it or anything. That's right. Yeah. And, and asking him to come up with something.
1: Well, I think you know, the thing about working with people multiple times is you sort of start to get a sense of how you want to engage them or engage the the creative process. Um, And I think I felt like the score we were going to need for this could not be a science fiction score. It had to speak to the heart of the material. Um, And I also felt sort of selfishly that I I kind of wanted some music to to be able to write to, Uh, you know. I mean, um, so what I, I got Hans to agree to, he was in the middle of doing the music for... Zack Snyder a Man of Steel, and, and I got him to agree uh, to give me a day out of his schedule, and just take one day, and I said to him, I'm gonna write you a, like a letter describing what I refer to as the fable behind the, the story. So no indication of genre, just, just about the themes of it and about what the emotional story was going to be. Uh, and I said to him, you can take one day and whatever you write at the end of the day, you've got to play it for me and that's that'll be the basis of the music for the score. Um, and he agreed. And, you know, Hans is a legendary procrastinator, so it was actually a pretty good way of getting getting music out of him very quickly. Um, but he he did. I mean, I, he called me and at the end of that day and I went over to his studio and he played me this piece that really is... The film. I mean, it is the school for Interstellar like in an almost complete fashion. Like everything, almost everything in the film is derived from, from what he played me that day. And I listened to it endlessly as I was writing the script. Um, but I then, you know, after he played me the music, then I told him, well, actually, it's a science fiction film. And he was, you know, genuinely pretty surprised. But he understood what I had done because I really didn't... I didn't want any images in his head relating to science fiction or to the universe or any of that. I wanted him thinking about the emotional heart of the story. Um, and I think it, it's a great score and, and you know, I, it, it worked very well. I, I mean, I was really, really pleased. It was an interesting process.
0: We talked to already about kind of creating this, the, the world as much as you can for your actors to immerse mm-hmm. them in it, to, to allow them the, the chance to be as real as they can within those situations. And with this, you really wanted to create that world outside those windows of those mm. crafts that your actors were, were contained in. How did you go about that? But also, how did you, you know, these are places that that humans have never been to, you yeah. know, so in creating and what that would look like and sound like and feel like.
1: Well, it was really about, I mean, the early involvement in the project uh, of Kip Thorne as mm-hmm. the executive producer. Um, when we came to do The Black Hole, which features later in the film, he had all these equations that he wanted to share with us. Um, and I put him together with Paul Franklin, the visual effects supervisor, and really it was this incredible thing of, you know, Kip is a, a very brilliant physicist who sometime this week is getting a Nobel Prize, uh, wow. but he, uh, uh, not for executive producing the film, unfortunately, um, <laughs> but he, he had all of these equations on what the gravity of a black hole would do to the light and therefore the appearance, and essentially we had the graphics machines. You know, Paul and his team were able to take these equations and spend months and months and months rendering them and, and looking at what the mathematics would really provide, which was something beyond what anyone would sort of design. And that was really the challenge, is to try and get some kind of serendipity, some kind of something you wouldn't design mm-hmm. into into the material. So with the wormhole, which is one of the toughest things to come up with, um, because the mathematics of that, are, it literally is just concentric circles. It's the most boring thing you can imagine. Uh, And so we had to find some way to give it some kind of organic texture. And in the end, Paul and his team, having tried a lot of different alternatives, um, they actually took the plate shots we'd done in Iceland of all the glaciers and used them as texture maps for the computer graphics so that there would be this kind of random texture to things that they were projecting stars and flashes of light onto and so forth. And that way they started to get some kind of, Feeling of reality to something that that otherwise would be completely abstract. Um, so a lot of different a lot of different brains, you know, fed into mm. what it was going to be. Um, but we tried to do everything in advance and not leave things to later. So the, those visualizations they were done before we shot, so that we could then put the material onto screens, front projection screens that we put outside the windows, and so a lot of those shots are in camera, you know, they're just looking out the windows of what was being projected there. So the actors knew what they were reacting to and we get the real flashes of light, reflections of the real material and stuff. And, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot more exciting to do than if we'd had, you know, green screens out there. Or
0: yeah, and, and also just the, the, the reality on on Earth as well with the corn, yeah. you planted 500 acres of corn, I we believe. Did. Wow. I we did. Wow, and made a profit from it, well we done. We did make a profit. <laughs>
1: we were able to sell the corn, yes.
0: And and the, the dust clouds as well, which that was that yeah. was that was real. Uh,
1: yeah, most of it's real. Most of it's in camera, and then some of the big wide shots we where you have to see a vast dust storm, like at the baseball game. Yeah, um, we did those CG based on uh, Ken Burns' documentary about the Dust Bowl, uh, but we actually toned down. You know, if you look at. Uh, the material that Ken was using, um, the dust storms, it was so huge, you really wouldn't have believed them. So we, we actually kind of made them smaller. Um, but I was so struck by his documentary about this period in history, the Dust Bowl, that was, and I had never known this, but it was a man-made phenomenon. Uh, you know, it was over overworking the land and, and not rotating the crops enough and not ploughing correctly, in, combined with a relatively ordinary period of drought, and, and it just laid waste to, to entire states, and um, these amazing dust storms happened. And he'd interviewed um, these people who were children at the time, uh, and he got them on, on camera, and they gave these amazing interviews. And I, um, I called up Ken, who I didn't know, but I, but I got in touch with him, and I said, I want to use, if you would let me, I want to use some outtakes that you didn't use if you've got the 16 mil negatives. I want to use them in the film as if they were people in the future talking about uh, a disaster that's yet to happen, um, and so uh, you know we integrated our our characters with um, with that real footage of these you know the real people talking about something they actually lived through, and it sounds like they're describing a crazy science fiction phenomenon, but it's something that really happened, and it was a as I say a man-made phenomenon.
0: Wow, do you do you think about your the audience seeing your film more than once? Do you like the idea of them seeing your films more than once? Because I, I felt love so the idea smug of seeing films more than once. I felt really smug after seeing this again recently, going, yes, I get it! You know, it's that kind of thing where... Because the different times that you watch a film, you, you take yeah. m- different parts in, and we'll talk about that with Dunkirk in a second. But
1: Well, the way we watch films is different to earlier periods of, of cinema. I mean, I'm... The first generation of filmmaker who grew up with home video, VHS. Okay, so you know we got our first VHS player when I was eleven years old, and that changes your relationship with film narrative because you can stop and start with them, you can go back and look at things again, and with all of the ancillary markets now, and they keep multiplying, you know, into different things. Now you've got streaming services and this that. And, um, you wind up seeing films that you don't even like three or four times. I mean, you just do. You know, It'll be on an airplane or in a hotel room or on TV and you watch 15 minutes of it, whatever. So I'm the sort of first-generation filmmakers who really had to take that on as a different relationship between the audience and the narratives they're seeing. And so if you can find a way... I mean, Disney were the first people to sort of figure this out with the, the animation they were doing in the 90s, where they started putting in little extra things for... Because they realized you know, kids were getting these VHS and watching them hundreds and hundreds of times. <laughs> so just to stop the parents going crazy or whatever, you know, they would put in a lot of visual detail. Um, I tried to do it more in a narrative sense. I tried to layer the narratives in such a way that they have to work for the audience as they're watching it. But there can be layers in there. There could be things that maybe you won't get noticed until you know, a second or third viewing. But I don't do it in too self-conscious a way. It's really about information density. You know, in the case of the Disney movies, that's about visual density. Mm. In the case of my films, it, it's more about narrative density and, and trusting that the way people watch films now, um, they're a little more relaxed about missing things, you know, or, or catching up on things later, as it were.
0: Well, I had the absolute pleasure of seeing this next film at the Science Museum on the IMAX there, and it was incredible, Dunkirk. An exceptional film. Congratulations, Thank you. really, really is. And you know, it's interesting because there's 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 not much dialogue, but it's an incredible script. And a script doesn't just have to be about dialogue. Mm. Um, and I think there is so much in this film that is in the script, but is not spoken. Does that make does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I'd been making films for years where if you didn't carefully read the stage directions. Uh, you were lost. And it was problematic because the truth is the way people... People who read scripts for a living just read the dialogue um, because they're reading so many scripts. And and it's the same for me. It's a tendency. You skip over the big paragraphs of description or whatever and you tend to just uh, read the dialogue. And I was interested in... I think partly or mainly because this is history. These are actual events. These things really happen and people really live through it. I think I was interested in taking away some of the artifice of, of how I use dialogue in films generally um, and seeing what other tools I could use. And so the script was intricately constructed and has all the indications of how things are going to work visually, but not with the dialogue. We just sort of removed that. I mean, I think that's the most dialogue there is in the film, probably. Um, and I found that, Engage, I found that um, really energized my creative process. Uh, You know, it just made me have to think about the storytelling in a different way. And actually, I I know that at every stage, and particularly the editing, for example, with Lee Smith, a very brilliant editor I've worked with for years, you know, he felt somewhat unmoored putting it together because you have all these shots and all this material of this reconstruction of different events but you don't have the dialogue. You you suddenly realise how much the dialogue becomes your backbone for everything, for pacing, for point of view, for, for how you do things. And I had found that during the shooting, because you you turn up for your shooting day and you're not just covering the lines, and you realise mostly that's what you do, is you just make sure you get every piece of dialogue on camera, and then once you've done that, maybe you play around a bit, but you, that's the backbone of your day. And that was... So I'd already sort of got used to the idea, but it took me a little while in the edit suite to get used to it, because it's... It is different, you know, as far as how you're creating the emphasis. And and, uh, for me, it was all about trying to adopt the language of suspense. Uh, What distinguishes Dunkirk as a a story and and a real event is this element of it being a very intense survival story, and there's a degree of, a massive degree of suspense. And so I was looking at. The cinema of you know Alfred Hitchcock and, and Clouseau uh, and the great masters of, of suspense, and suspense is primarily a visual language. Dialogue doesn't tend to, to be the main weapon that, that they employ. It's, it's a visual language and it's a fairly pedantic visual language. You have to be very precise about showing particular things and ticking clocks mm. and what a particular threat is. And then in the edit suite, you have to be disciplined about maintaining that clarity, uh, whereas in action films you can choose to really play around with that and confuse people about things or whatever. There's just a kineticism that takes over. With suspense, you have to be very uh, very particular.
0: And you used this technique called the shepherd tone, which you'd originally used within the score of the prestige, if that's right, and something you adopted or, or approached with the narrative with this in terms of that suspense and the...
1: Yeah, I had, um, on, on the prestige, I had come across a a bit of music that I couldn't understand how it kept going up and up and up and so I called Dave Julian who did the music for the Prestige and I played it to him down the phone and I was like, how does this work and can we do it? And he recognised it immediately as a shepherd tone and a shepherd tone is, it's sort of the audio equivalent of an optical illusion Um, and it's, you know, a series of tones that are played so it appears to be continually rising like a barbershop pole, if you like, a corkscrew effect Mm. and... Dave, I think, very brilliantly layered that into a lot of the cues, most of the cues in The Prestige. It was all based on this sense of, I wanted him to produce a sense of anticipation in the sort of ambience of, of the cues, so it's always rising, it's always going somewhere. Um, and I love the way it worked, and so we then incorporated it into all kinds of other things in later films, including sound effects. So, Dark Knight, the, the sound of the bat pod, is continually rising, and it's based on our on shepherd. Shepherd chord, um, so it never downshifts. It's always going up. you know. Um, and in trying to figure out how to approach Dunkirk as a suspense film, I decided that what I wanted to try to do was to see if I could write that way, see if I could make the narrative do that by having multiple story strands and having one peak as the next one is beginning to build and the other one is, is coming to a conclusion. So you have a continual series of peaks, so you're always increasing in intensity throughout the whole the whole film. And then, you know, I asked hands musically and rhythmically whatever to, to reinforce that and to use those kind of ideas in, in the score.
0: And in terms of, of, of shooting it and I mean it's just it's incredible the especially in the, the in the, the planes and how you were able to do that and mm. you're you did you, you you got lenses specifically made so that they could kind of well, yeah, within the, the plane or attached to the planes? Yeah, they,
1: I mean, the thing, the thing we wanted to do is... is Hoiter, my director of photography, and myself, we were determined to you know, put the audience in the cockpit. Mm. And we also knew that we needed to maintain the IMAX format through those scenes um, because it is such a wonderfully high-resolution format. But the camera is enormous. I mean, it's it's like a microwave oven with a lens on the front. <laughs> and those cockpits are not large. And so trying to figure out how to do that... Um, we looked at various different options, and in the end, Hoiter, who's got a he's got a real engineering brain, actually. You know, he, he sort of mills things out of metal in his garage as a hobby. You know, he's very he's very technical. He's a CNC machine that he built himself and everything. And what he figured out is if you took the camera and you oriented it this way, and you had a lens that had a right angle on it, you know, with a prism, you could gain more space that way and move it around in a different way. Um, and you could mount it behind uh, the pilot's head and have a lens that that would put you a sort of mirror and prism arrangement that would give you a nodal point of view. That is to say, you could pan around from the pilot's point of view. And, you know, he spent months and months with the guys from Panavision developing these lenses to be able to do that. And it was his tenacity, really, because I think, you know, I certainly wanted to do it that way, but there's a point where, you Talking about avionics and buying airplanes and building lenses or whatever, we go, I, you know, is this really going to happen? But, but he just stuck with it and he, he just made it happen. And uh, in that way, we were able to do an enormous amount in, in camera on IMAX uh, and, and really try and put the audience up in, in the cockpit. And one of the other things that, that we were determined to do and wound up doing is. And when we looked at all the great sort of aerial sequences from other films, and there have been amazing ones in the history of films, uh, usually what let them down in terms of seeing the artifice were the cockpit shots, the shots of the pilots, of the actors. Uh, And so our stunt coordinators suggested that there's an airplane we could buy, it's a Romanian plane called a Yak, that's about the same size and shape as a Spitfire, but it has two cockpits. And without being separated by a bulkhead, so what we're able to do is dress the plane to look more like a Spitfire, and build camera mounts on it, so that we could put the actor in the front of the plane, and the pilot in the rear cockpit, actually flying the plane, and fly in formation with Spitfires and actually get the shots for real of of um, the actor. And that, you know, took I mean, it just took months and months. When you build a camera mount on a plane for a camera that big, it's you, know, you have to build it one little piece at a time and then test fly it and then mm. balance it on the other wing and figure out the trims and everything. So it took months and months to figure out, but...
0: Uh, and where uh, are you while this has been shot?
1: <laughs> I, I was uh, <laughs> standing down on the runway kind of looking at my watch and, you know, waiting, waiting for the plane to come back safe. Because there's no monitor. Fretting. Uh No, what we did is we sent, like, you know, Jack Loudon, you know, played Collins. He would... Mm go up in the plane and the pilot, Craig Hosking, would have a stop and start button and he had a signal for Jack, because you could barely hear each other in the plane. Uh, And he would let him know when it started filming and they would just run multiple takes, which is not unlike the way you have to film driving scenes. So when you film a driving scene, uh, you might have a headset on and a walkie talkie, but unless there's room for you to go in the back seat, which sometimes there is, you generally have to leave the actors to it and say, okay, just run it four or five times and then we'll look at the tape when you come back. And so, you know, the plane would come back down and I'd say, how would it go? And he'd say, well, I think, you know, pretty well, or whatever, and we'd queue up the tape and have a look and, and say, yeah, okay, can you do it again? And they, they'd fly up again. And, um, you know, that went on for a few days and, and stuff. <laughs> uh, it, we had a, a good machine game, we had a great aerial unit because that was one platform that we had. And then Craig, who also flew the helicopters and flew his own Aerostar, which was a plane that could keep up with the Spitfires, the real Spitfires. and. There's this wonderful guy called Dan Friedkin, who owns, uh, I think he's got six Spitfires. Uh, he's he's a very successful businessman in, in Texas, who now is producing movies very successfully. Actually, this year he has several out. And using
0: his money to good
1: use. Using his money to good use, and I think in <laughs> retrospect, because I was, I once I was surprised that he was. He's a brilliant pilot. He landed the Spitfire on the beach for that sequence, and. That required him being on call and being a part of our unit for weeks and weeks, where he could have been off—I don't know—making huge deals or whatever it is <laughs> you know he normally does. Yeah. And he, you know he very generously gave us his time and, and and his planes, which was an incredible thing. And of course now I realise he was really wanting to you know figure out the movie business, which he has, which is, is pretty cool. But <laughs> but that's uh, yeah that that's Dan landing landing the plane on the beach yeah. for us and. Uh, now he's producing Ridley Scott's film, and uh, you know, it's kind of a fun thing. Wow. Uh, but so we had a lot of things that needed to come together like that to to help us out because uh, none of none of the stuff was none of the stuff was easy.
0: And we just get to enjoy it. That's yeah. the wonderful thing. Right, we have a couple of minutes for some audience questions. Whoa. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to go with this young gentleman in the second row first.
2: Hi, thanks. Hi, Chris. Thank you for everything you've done. Um, the way you spoke about. Hoyt and, and the way you spoke about the other DP. Wally. Yeah. Wally, sorry, yeah. So I'm a bit nervous. Um, the way you spoke about the DPs, um, very elegantly, and I'm very interested in the process that a director has with their DPs. Mm. What is the one quality you'd put above others in a DP when you work with them? What, what would you say
1: that is? I don't think it's possible to reduce it to individual qualities, because I think really what you're looking for is connection a collaboration um, the way my movie sets run and I think it's fairly typical on, on larger films uh, and smaller films as well actually when I think about it I don't know why I said larger films it, that relationship is is the key creative relationship on the set in terms of shaping the day and getting things done um, so really what you're looking for is somebody who somebody who listens but has their own ideas and can execute and so somebody who can uh, work with autonomy and authority. If you have to step off set, they can keep moving the things forward. But who will listen to you and who will try their best to interpret what it is what it is you want? But it's a very very vital relationship, um, as it is with an editor. You know, and I was speaking about Lee Smith earlier, but he's he's an editor I have a very long and productive relationship Because you're you know you're in these very very intense relationships with these crew members, so it's it's important that you find someone that you just have the right fit with. Brilliant, thank you.
0: Thank you. We've got a question up there. Go. Um, you've done some quite exciting and a bit crazy things with some of your scenes, the, the truck flipping, the rotating room, mm. the f- um, filming from the cockpit. Are there any that you wanted to do that you weren't able to get into your films, any sort of crazy ideas that didn't come into being? Um. Kip, see, that's not possible in Interstellar. Exactly. <laughs> no, Kip was
1: very—he was an enabler. I mean, he was—he was, he was <laughs> all for for doing the crazier and crazier things. I think, I'm sure there are. It would be tough to immediately bring any to mind um, because quite often things fall away for budgetary reasons, or or you you take the idea and you you turn it into something else. Everything winds up being scaled down. The thing I will say about the truck flip is, you know. For months, they would come to me with, you know, like a little, like a minivan, and then like a slightly bigger van, and say we could flip this over there. <laughs> and every time I was like, no, no, it has to be, you know, using a truck. And so I, I remember the times when I stuck to something, and and then they were, they sort of went. but Chris Corbell finally just went, yeah, all right, you know, and just went away, <laughs> and, and and figured it out. Um, but no, I mean, filmmaking is all intelligent compromises, so. Honestly, the, the truth is, everything you see is in some way a watered-down version of what we all originally talked about, with the exception of that truck flip. That is exactly <laughs> what, I, what I asked for, so, yeah. uh,
0: We've got a microphone up there. Hello, sir.
2: Um, if you could talk a little bit about um, how you got the opportunity to make Memento, which was your breakthrough film, um, mm-hmm. because uh, obviously Following was your first feature, and then
1: you broke into Hollywood. If you could talk about that journey, please. Well, I think in retrospect, what worked well about that journey, uh, I mean, there's a lot of luck involved with all of these things, uh, and that always has to be said. But where I was fortunate is that I'd already written the script for Memento before we played festivals and got distribution for following. And that was, I didn't sort of plan it that way. We just, it took us a long time to get anybody to pay any attention to our first film um, and so I wrote in, in the meantime but in retrospect it was a really important thing because you have that moment where somebody's seen something that you've done that has potential that they like it's at a festival or, um, or what have you and then it's like okay what do you want to do what would you do if you had more money or whatever to be able to actually hand them a script and say this is what I'm doing next uh, that was actually very very important I think also the structural uh, ideas in Memento were reflected they, w- they were echoing what was in Following as well so people could look at that film and see the potential of how the other film would work so I think that was a very powerful kind of one-two punch if you like in terms of trying to trying to you know break or trying to leap over that, that barrier to getting your first kind of budgeted film done because for people who don't know I mean Following you know we made it for no money I mean I just paid for it out of the money I was earning and the job I was doing. We shot on weekends and all of that. So it, it was a no-budget film. So it was that leap to, to a, a budgeted film that, that we're talking about.
0: We've got time for two more questions. This gentleman here is waving furiously with a lovely <laughs> scarf on so he can have one. And then we got one there. They better be good, I'm just saying. Okay.
1: <laughs> no problem. Okay. Congratulations <laughs> on an amazing body of work. It's uh, really fantastic. Um, it's going back to the... Uh, Hans Zimmer's score for Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested to know on, on how you actually... It's, it's almost like the music, the, the sound design was incorporated into the music itself. It's like rattling of the spaceship suddenly mm-hmm. become notes and sounds like that. And also, just quickly, the the organ, um, was that in the original piece that he actually gave you, that he worked on the day? I was I was fortunate enough to go and see... Um, be at the Albert Hall and see the uh, uh, the, live yeah, the live orchestra, or... oh, which is absolutely fine. amazing, and that organ was incredible. So um, yeah. could you talk a bit about that, please? Sure. Um, I mean, as far as the integration of music and sound goes, uh, we've always... I've always had the sound designers work very closely with the composers. So we were talking about Shepherd Tones earlier, what Dave had done and what Richard King, the sound designer, would do. and, and there's always been a back and forth. The other thing I've always done that that both Dave and Hans uh, had accommodated was, and, and this was very much the case on Interstellar. We get many, many tracks, so it's not like here's a piece of music and you just figure out how loud you want it. Um, usually, pretty loud. Uh, it's it's really about you know hundreds of of tracks. In the case of Dunkirk, thousands of tracks, literally, and so you're able to integrate them with the sound effects in very particular ways and bring out particular sounds and strip everything away or, I mean, Dunkirk's fresher in my mind because we just made it, but um, like the boat engines are uh, carried by the music track at some times and then other times the sound effects, but they're always in rhythm and in perfect sync and everything. Uh, So we've always tried for that integration because the truth is you have a very limited amount of audio real estate in in a film, in, in a mix. And so you can't have pounding music and pounding sound effects. They have to work in harmony. And, and so the scene we showed from The Dark Knight, which is the truck flip, the old car chase, that doesn't have any music on it. Uh, and because we needed a pause there. And so we had Richard King analyze the sound effects in terms of the low end elements being like drums and the high end elements being like uh, you know violins or... or you know, ticking sounds or what have you. So we've always tried to view the soundtrack very holistically as music and sound together, not as two separate elements. And Pro Tools technology, which is what, you know, everybody uses on the stage, it really allows you to to interweave these things and play around with that in a very careful and particular way. But you have to have composers who are willing to let you experiment with the elements. If, If, you know, and I've never worked with a composer who is unduly precious about that, but that would make it much more difficult if it were a sort of complete piece of music. It's, it's a lot more fun to get, you know, what, um, you know, I mean, Hans would always refer to it as a Lego set, you know, these sort of blocks that you can use and, and play around with. And and on Interstellar, um, the organ was not incorporated in the original track that he sent me. Um, it was just something that I really wanted to do. I felt like it would be the right sound for the scale of film we were making and there was something about the history of it that felt right to me in terms of, instead of going in a science fiction direction, we're going in a modernist direction. And he very much liked, liked the idea. And interestingly, even though Hans grew up, uh, you know, he would play, he, he would experiment on the organ in the town where he grew up when he was very young. He'd actually never used an organ in any of his scores, uh, surprisingly, uh, and so it was a, it was a very new, unique and new challenge that he had to wrestle with, but I think it really, uh, it really inspired him. Actually,
0: last one's on you.
2: <laughs> okay, it's going to be a good one. Thanks for coming, Christopher. It's great to have you here. Um, I have to say, probably I can't choose between all your films, but probably Inception I think is the creme de la creme personally. But what's wrong with the others?
0: <laughs> no, <they're...
2: laughs> I can't choose. They're amazing. But I'm gonna... It's like choosing your favourite child, but they're they're all amazing. But I think that one is. If there, is a, if there is an Everest, Leave I think it. it's that one. But, um, but I had a, a two-part question. First, all, I wanted to talk to you about um, and ask you about uh, the Howard Hughes script that you wrote but weren't mm-hmm. able to make and what attracted you to the character of Howard Hughes. And um, secondly, uh, the character of Cobb has appeared in The Following and in Inception. And if I, I watched um, recently uh, a, a screen test with Christian Bell as Batman. And if I heard it correctly, I think he talked about Cobb. And I don't recall Cobb being in the Batman films unless I've missed it. But who is Cobb or what does he represent? Is an acronym for something? Is there, is there something behind Cobb? Corn no, on the cob? nothing, Cobb? Nothing. on the Cobb?
1: Nothing massively mysterious. Uh, it's just a name I use that I like the sound of. And so coming up with names, as any of you right now, I mean, it's just a pig. <laughs> it's just a, it's, it's tricky. And so when you have something that expresses something, there's a feeling to it that seems right. Okay. You feel like okay, I can I can appropriate, I can steal from myself. So uh, it, it's it's more on on that level um, than anything too too specific, to be quite frank. Um, was there another part? Yeah, and, and Howard
2: Hughes, the, the script. And, oh and yeah. what, what attracted um, you to Howard?
1: The... Well, I don't know how much you know about Howard Hughes, but he's sort of, I mean, he's just a fascinating character, and his history is is fascinating. And he's, I mean, let me put it this way: a lot of what I put into my How to script that I do hope to to make one day, so I don't want to say too much about it. Sure. But a lot of what I found interesting, that character channeled its way to Bruce Wayne very very easily. Okay. Uh, you know, as far as the okay. eccentric billionaire kind of yeah, characters yeah. go, um, his his history is is generally pretty fascinating. Um, and yeah. you know, one day I hope to do it because uh, there are, there are films that have addressed different aspects of of the extraordinary life you led, but but not the whole thing. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you guys for being here and for your questions and for listening. Fabulous Christopher Nolan. Thank you.